sound effect that was intended, but uh, anyway. But the song was, the song was, how many of you remember that song? Yeah, yeah, that's a, an oldie but a goodie. Money, money, money. The so- song title is actually For the Love of Money, and this is the annual or maybe semi-annual thing that I promised you, that I or one of the elders, and since those slackers, I mean other elders, have not picked up the ball to run with it, I apparently we'll have to preach you about money again, and I, I hate it. I hate preaching about money, almost as much as I hate preaching on Mother's Day. But you've got to do what you've got to do, because the Word says what the Word says, and we can't ignore parts of it, and this is kind of an important part. So, money, money, money. Everybody wants it. No one seems to have enough, even those who are very, very wealthy. Some of you may know this story about John Rockefeller who in the early 1900s was the Bill Gates, Mark Zuckerberg, or Jeff Bezos of this day. And he was the world's first billionaire. And he was asked once, how much is enough? And you know what he said? Just a little bit more. Yet even some in the world see the potential pitfalls of money. Money is also a topic that lends itself quite well to humor. For example... Uber lost over a billion dollars in the last six months, and so they're asking drivers to check between the seat cushions. Sometimes fine, you know, quarters, dimes. I had my credit card stolen the other day, but I didn't bother to report it because the thief spends less than me. There's nothing I've learned from being a parent that I couldn't just as easily have figured out from setting all my money on fire. Parenting is not a good financial decision, right, parents? I live in constant fear that my kid will become a famous artist or painter and I will have thrown out about a million dollars worth of her work. Refrigerator art, right? I let my kids follow their dreams unless I already paid the registration fee on their last dream. And then they follow that dream for about six or eight more weeks. And finally, here's a good one. Borrow money from pessimists. They don't expect it back. In thinking about this message this morning, I thought of some secular songs about money that at least begin to take some of the Bible's warnings about riches seriously. One is the song we heard at the beginning. It's by a group called the OJs, and it's called For the Love of Money. It was a top 100 song in 1974. Here's some of the lyrics to that song. Let's see if you can see some of the biblical ideas that are actually in this song, even though it wasn't written with that in mind, I'm sure. It was written by Barry Gordy. Anybody know who Barry Gordy is? Founder of Motown. A lot of very popular music, soul music in the 60s and 70s. Some people got to have it. Some people really need it. Listen to me, y'all. Do things, do things, do bad things with it. You want to do things, do things, do good things with it. For the love of money, people will steal from their mother. People will rob their own brother. People can't even walk the street because they never know who in the world they're going to meet for that lean, mean, mean, green, almighty dollar money. For the love of money, people will lie. They will cheat. For the love of money, people don't care who they hurt or beat. For the love of money, a woman will sell her precious body. For a small piece of paper, it carries a lot of weight. Call it lean, mean, mean, green, almighty dollar. I know money is the root of all evil. Do funny things to some people. Give me a nickel, brother. Can you spare a dime? Money can drive some people out of their minds. 
Money can change people sometimes. Don't let money fool you. Money can fool people sometimes. People don't let money, don't let money change you. It will keep on changing, changing up your mind. So actually I think there's a fair amount of biblical truth in this very secular song. It even kind of quotes scripture. The song says, I know money is the root of all evil. Well, the Word of God actually says in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 10, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many a pang. So what we see is that money is not the root of all evil. The love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. The warning in uh, 1 Timothy actually takes it a step further, telling us that craving for money, wanting it too much, right, can cause us to wander from the faith. That's a very serious potential consequence of the love of money. If money or possessions don't have the proper place in the life of a believer in Christ. So we should look back one more verse to see the whole context here of 1 Timothy chapter 6, the verses we just read. We're going to back up a few verses. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires, that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. So, we see that the world talks about money too. Wants money, even craves money. We see this craving illustrated in a lot of ways in our culture today. We see it in the lottery. We see it in gambling. We see it in get-rich-quick schemes. We see this craving in the stock market. We also see it in more simple ways, like the sometimes neglect of family and friends for the sake of pursuing wealth. We see it in the crime rate, where robbers and thieves take what they want whenever they want. Sadly, we also see this crass materialism in segments of the church, in the false doctrines of the prosperity gospel, among very popular, and I must add, very wealthy television preachers, and others who apparently never read the verse that we just read in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 9. I have a video clip to just give you an illustration of that. here for woman now or loose I did not expect to receive an offering the Lord gave me a word Psalm 126 the Lord spoke everyone was to give a hundred six dollars that when you sow in tears you're gonna reap a joy if you put it in that in that bucket you're gonna lose it but if you put it in in my hand you're gonna gain something from heaven tonight if you're giving a thousand five hundred or a hundred start coming down 
right now. Come on. I want to lay my hand on your envelope. I want to lay my hand on your envelope. Now, I want to say the editorial comments in the text on the videos were not mine. They were on the original source video that I edited. Not that I necessarily disagree with those editorial comments. <clears throat> I just think the words of these preachers are quite enough to reveal their hard attitude about money. I could highlight even more the very lavish lifestyles that these very popular TV preachers live. But let's just say it's another example of the truth of 1 John chapter 2, verse 16. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. So what we see here is a wrong perspective. And let me be very clear, this is a wrong perspective among some segments of the church about money. However, rather than just look out there, and you've heard the phrase low-hanging fruit, you pick the low-hanging fruit, that's the easy-to-get-at stuff, the easy-to-understand. Rather than just pick on the low-hanging fruit, like prosperity preachers we just highlighted, we must have enough self-awareness to look inside ourselves and ask ourselves and ask the Holy Spirit to show us how much that the world's view of money and possessions has influenced us as individuals. We have to draw a very clear distinction between what the Word teaches us about money and what we as believers living in this world tend to believe and tend to practice. So doing that, if we're honest with ourselves, again, this is a self-awareness and that only, only the Holy Spirit can bring about this kind of self-awareness. We have to admit that some of the ways we think about money may be influenced more by the world's view of money than a biblical worldview. That's sometimes hard to not have happen, isn't it? The world influences us, doesn't it? And we swim in it every day. And sometimes, even unthinkingly, the world's viewpoint influences us. One of the first things we can mention, I want to mention this morning, is debt. Many consumers borrow far beyond their means, some so much that they have very little hope of paying it back. We saw that in the housing crisis a decade or so ago, when many people bought homes that they just could not afford by borrowing more than they could realistically repay. Now, don't hear me say that you cannot use credit responsibly. For example, here at TCF, we have a church credit card, and we use it for everything we possibly can because we get rewards points that essentially allow us to get some things for free. But this is a major caveat here. We spend this way because we know we can pay off that bill every month. So we never pay interest. If we could not pay that bill every month, this would be a very irresponsible way for us to use the money that you give sacrificially to the work of the Lord. Instead, we use credit to actually extend our resources. So that's an important distinction we have to do. I believe this can be good stewardship. Barb and I do this too with our credit cards. And there are certainly also those circumstances where buying on credit is really the only way you can purchase some things that really are, in fact, necessary. But remember this. We must determine the difference between just what we want, on the one hand, and what we really need. Wants and needs. That sometimes things we think we need are not things we need. That's why we read in 1 Timothy chapter 6 again, but godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. 
do we really need to eat out at the nicest restaurant? Do we really need the latest smartphone? Do we need the biggest flat screen TV? Do we need the coolest video game, the most popular or fashionable clothes, the coolest car? They're nice to have. You know what? They're even okay to have. But are they really needs? We have elevated that word need to something that it's really not anymore. Most of us in this room already have pretty much everything we need. We have food, we have clothing, we have shelter. And some of us use credit responsibly, but maybe some of us have accumulated a lot of debt by spending more than we should have on things that are wants and not really needs. Every store you go to is quite happy to extend credit to you to allow you to borrow borrow money from them to get the things that you think you need but maybe only really want. Then there's the message of instant gratification. And this is closely tied to the idea of debt that we just looked at. Another idea of something that we get from the world's view of money rather than a biblical view of money. We want things and we want them now. We think that it's our right to have these things we want before we have saved up the money to buy them. Barb's dad, in the time that I knew him, never bought a car on credit. Not even a car. He paid cash for the lake house that we've inherited. That house never had a mortgage because he saved enough money to pay for it. Now, I also realize that some of us don't have the kind of an income to enable us to do something like this. This desire to, uh, or need to have something before we can save up for it isn't necessarily bad. Very few of us would ever be able to purchase a house if we couldn't borrow money from the bank and pay it back over 20 or 30 years. But the flip side of this is what, when, how, and why we borrow. The same mindset, I need it now, can apply to things beyond housing. Okay, that's shelter. We need shelter, right? It can also drive us to go to Best Buy and buy a brand new TV and sound system using a credit card. It's free for the first six months, but then there's the beginning of a big interest charge after that. Now again, if you will pay it off in six months, why not use Best Buy's money for six months? But almost anything we want, we can have now, we can pay for it later. So credit in and of itself, okay, is not sinful. I have a mortgage. I have a car loan. It has more to do with our heart attitude toward money and possessions as well as being honest about the difference between what we need and what we really just want. Can we be honest about that with ourselves? Instant gratification, that's another thing borrowed from the world, not from the Bible. We have a natural drive toward materialism. Materialism is a way of looking at life through what is material, through possessions. It tells us that material things are the highest good. So when we say that we live in a materialist culture, What we're saying is that most people live as if the physical world is all that there is. Now, if this is really true, then of course it makes sense that we will only pursue things that are material. But this naturally also leads to greed. We will measure our happiness, we will measure our success in life, not by any God-given measure, but by a material measure, by things, by stuff. There's the bumper sticker that says, the one who dies with the most toys wins. Have you ever seen that one? But again, we see Scripture's clear warnings. We saw it in 1 Timothy 
uh, chapter 6, which we've read earlier. We can read about it in Luke chapter 12, where Jesus tells the parable of the rich fool. Only what he could acquire and accumulate mattered to him. He filled up all of his barns. Now that was riches in his day. There were no cell phones or flat screen TVs, right? But for us, it might be cars and houses and bank accounts or just stuff. We read in Luke chapter 12, and Jesus told them this parable, the ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones, and there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool. This very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves but is not rich toward God. That's a great phrase, isn't it? Rich toward God. When this rich man died, he discovered there's a lot more to the world than his stuff, his things, his possessions. Writer Tim Challies, from whom some of the thoughts in this message are developed, wrote this, Materialism essentially promises us that happiness can come through the things that we buy. It's very seductive. Maybe you wait every week for the Best Buy catalog, and when it comes, you find yourself looking at it, somehow imagining that happiness will come with that 60-inch TV or that iPad or whatever that gadget is. Not that I ever do that myself, of course. Maybe it's the clothing catalog or Etsy or a list of new books. Whatever it is, materialism holds out the promise of happiness and fulfillment through stuff. And to varying degrees, we are all drawn to it. That's where that self-awareness, that Holy Spirit-given self-awareness comes in. How much are we drawn to this? It's in all of us. How much are we drawn to this? We need to think about this. This materialistic attitude is reflected by the TV preachers we looked at a moment ago. But it's important to note that we can also draw from the world another attitude about money and possessions that is not biblical also. This one's a bit different. Martin Luther once said that humanity is like a drunk guy who gets onto a horse and falls off one side and then climbs back on and falls off the other side. In other words, we tend to go too far in one direction and if we don't like that direction, we go too far in the other. It's the, the other way to look at it is a pendulum swing. The pendulum swings here. It's too far. We recognize it. Instead of letting it come back to the middle somewhere, we sw- let it swing to the other direction too far. Now, asceticism is the polar opposite of materialism, but it's just as wrong. Scripture gives us plenty of warnings, as we've already seen, about the love of money. But money is not in and of itself a bad thing. Thanks be to God. Neither are the blessings of the material things that money can buy. In fact, these things are a good gift of our gracious and mighty God. And we can be thankful for them. We might be tempted sometimes when we see these warnings that we've looked at about the dangers of money, materialism, of a love of money, right? To just get frustrated and give up when it comes to money and possessions, we might be inclined to think something like this. If money's so bad, if it's so dangerous, then we should just get rid of it and not have so much of it. Because it's so corrupting that we're better off without it. But remember something important here. 
And we've already seen this this morning. It's not money that's the root of all kinds of evil. It's the love of money. Money and possessions are good gifts of God. They are blessings. They allow us to have the resources, first of all, to advance His kingdom. They also allow us to have food, clothing, and shelter. Remember this, too. Rich people were never condemned in Scripture for being rich. We see the rich condemned often, but we don't see them condemned for being rich. They were only condemned for the way they used or didn't use their riches or for putting their things before God, for putting their own comfort first, for their heart attitudes about their possessions. They were condemned for making money or possessions an idol in their hearts, a higher priority than the one who made it possible for them to have all their stuff, right? We read in Deuteronomy chapter 8, 18, who makes it possible for us to have all the things we have? You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is He who gives you the power to get wealth. God provides and asks of us that we would manage those things that He provides and manage them well. That's called stewardship. And it's at least one component of that stewardship in that we give some of that money away. So we might ask the question as Christians, and that's what most of us are here this morning, do we have to give? Do we have to give? If so, how are we to give? Where and how much? Okay, so I'm going to put some figures up here and I'm going to cite for each... No, I'm just kidding. We're going to look at the principles about how we give and how much we give. Remember, money's a good gift from God and even though it can be used for evil... And even though it has the capacity to become an idol, money is good. There's nothing wrong with earning it. There's nothing wrong with having a lot. The Lord expects stewardship of our time as well as our money. So He expects that we will work hard with our time and earn our money and use it responsibly. For the follower of Christ, this stewardship requires us to give at least some of it away. We see this modeled in the Old Testament. Now, Before you think, well, you know, we live under grace, we don't live under law anymore. Yes, I know we live under grace. I know that we don't live under the old covenant. But that does not mean we can ignore many of the principles that we see first outlined in the Old Testament. And one thing God made clear to His chosen people from the earliest days of Him walking with them is that He required them to give back to Him what He provided. He asked for the first and the best of what they produced. Why did He ask for the first and the best instead of the last and the least? They revealed something important. It all belongs to Him. It all belongs to Him. That is a root foundational understanding that we have here about money and possessions at TCF. It all belongs to Him. So by giving away the first and the best, God's people were recognizing this important truth. That all of what they had, what they gave away, and what they were allowed to keep and use and enjoy, all belongs to Him. Now this is supposed to develop in us an attitude of gratitude, not an attitude of materialism. So in the Old Testament, God asked for a tithe. 
That's 10%. So 10% of the harvest was be, to be given to the Lord. <clears throat> now tithe, some people think that means gift or donation. It does not. It means 10% or one-tenth. So though we do not live under the old covenant, and the tithe is no longer a law, and we will never treat it as such here at TCF, as it was to the Jewish people before the coming of Christ. The Old Testament background is important for this reason. Jesus himself assumed we would be givers. We see this in Matthew chapter 6 when Jesus says, when you give. He doesn't say if you give. He says when you give. Jesus, with his own understanding of the Old Testament, teaching himself, assumes <clears throat> that we will give. In the and, and Acts, we see in the early church, we see they implicitly understood this. We see in chapter 2, we see them selling their possessions for the benefit of the fellowship. And then in chapter 4, we see giving and generosity and that there was no one in need. Giving is also one of the themes of many New Testament epistles. Why? Giving because the Lord has given to us. And giving as the Lord has given to us. It was a message of gratitude and thanksgiving for the wonderful things God has provided for us. So what is our attitude to be? What should be the state of our hearts as we give? Well, I think we can answer that in a couple of ways. First, we are always to give as an act of worship. When we drop our offerings in those boxes now and before COVID, when we dropped them in the bags as they were passed around, that is part of this worship service. Worship isn't just the songs we sing. And we call that our worship time, and it is. But worship is what we're doing now, hearing the Word of God preached. Worship includes the prayer. Worship includes the communion. Worship includes the act of giving. Jesus warned against giving with wrong motives. Who did He speak to about that? He spoke to the Pharisees. And He warned them of making a show of their giving just as they made a great show of their fasting and their other acts of worship. This revealed the real reason they wanted to see, they wanted to be seen, they wanted to be admired by others. Their giving was really for themselves for selfish reasons and not for God. And Jesus saw through that, didn't He? He taught that we're to give for the express purpose of glorifying God. To thank God. And ultimately, in that, we worship God. This way of giving helps take our eyes off of ourselves. It's not about me. It's not about you. It reminds us of what the Old Testament tithing and first fruits was all about. Everything belongs to God. And everything we have, the good things we have, are signs of His goodness to us. We're also to give freely and willingly. In 2 Corinthians chapter 9, a familiar verse, each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. So remember that it all belongs to God, and as His stewards, we should be grateful and amazed that we can keep any of it. There are a lot of places we can give. There are a lot of causes that we can give to. But the New Testament seems to assume that your primary form of giving should be to the local church. This was the Old Testament model too. The tithe was not given to individuals, but was given to the Lord through appointed people. Now again, this is not a law. 
You can give to the Lord by giving to many different and worthwhile ministries and organizations and even individuals. And I do that. But I prioritize my giving by giving to the local church in which God has planted me. After caring for their own families, people in the New Testament always gave through the church. This makes sense for a lot of reasons. The church has leadership that's aware of the needs and responsive to the needs of the people in the church. That leadership can identify those most important needs. Also, the New Testament makes it clear that the church sets aside certain people for ministry work, and it's biblical to support them. So when you give to the church, you're supporting all of the work God gives the church to do, from paying staff to outreach to paying to sit this morning in an air-conditioned auditorium. Thank you, Lord. And everything else that it takes to sustain a church. At TCF, this would include specifically giving to missions, meaning we're helping put food on the table and clothes on the backs of those we support as TCF missionaries, like the thorns this morning that we saw as our missionaries of the week. So I'm not saying we need to give exclusively to the local church. And in the case of most of you here, the local church means TCF. But you certainly should prioritize generously supporting the work of God through TCF. And let me say this as a brief sidebar this morning. TCF's finances are always an open book to you. You can't give to the local church if you don't trust the local church, if you don't trust the leadership to do with your money what you believe, what we all see through Scripture God wants us to do. Our books are open to you. I've said this many times and nobody's ever come and say, Bill, I want to see the church budget. But I want to say it again. TCF's finances are open to you. The elders appreciate the trust you invest in us as you generously give to us. And we want you to know that we take very seriously our responsibility as stewards of God's resources. Always feel free to come to me or any of the elders if you have any questions at all about TCF's budget and how we spend the money that you give to the work of the Lord through this church. But what does generous giving mean? Does it mean 10%? Does it mean 20%? Does it mean more than that? I remember Bill Sanders and Chuck Farah both saying in the 1980s when I first came to this church that we should strive to be higher percentage givers. That 10% is only a starting place. We should strive to be 15, 17, 18, 19, 20% givers. The word is clear that we are to give according to what we have to give. We read in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 2, it says, each one is to give as he may prosper. The NIV translation of this verse says, in keeping with your income. In other words, all of us will give different amounts. If you're a teenager here and you've earned $100 doing some work, you'll give differently than the adult in a full-time job who makes $1,000 a week. And another brief side note, if you have money from any source, you should be a giver to God's kingdom. God provides that money, whether you earn it or it is given to you. This message is not just for the adults here, teenagers. Those with more money are expected to give more. There is no expectation to give what we don't have. We need to be generous, but we need to be wise. And though, again, the law of the Old Testament of the tithe is never reaffirmed in the new, we can note that many New Testament standards that we see are not lowered, but they're raised. Think about that in relationship to money. The Old Testament warned against adultery, but Jesus warned against a lustful glance. 
The Old Testament warned against murder. Jesus warned against even a hate-filled thought. Those Old Testament laws were a starting point to a much greater kind of obedience. And I would add, a greater kind of obedience that is enabled and empowered only by the Holy Spirit that lives inside of us. Out of obedience to Christ and because of what Christ has done, the stakes have all been raised. This makes it sound to me like 10% is a mere starting point. And I agree with that. In an age of law, 10% was just <clears throat> an act of obedience. In this age of grace, how could we possibly think something like this? I live under grace and not under law. I now have freedom in Christ to give nothing. Or I have freedom in Christ to give what's left at the end of the month. So I've been taught here at TCF through the 40-plus years that I've been here that we should think of 10% as kind of a baseline, kind of a starting point, and we should go from there. So how do you give? We give willingly and cheerfully, as we saw in Scripture a moment ago. We give primarily to the local church, but to other things as well. And we give enough that you feel it, that you feel it. That's at least a little bit of a sacrifice. Do this with a grateful heart attitude to the Lord who provides good things for us, including the money and the possessions, the good things we get to enjoy, to serve Him, to advance His kingdom, and also allows us by His grace to enjoy what He provides. There you go. We've swung the pendulum from one end of the spectrum to the other and right back to the middle. Money, 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 huh? Let's determine before the Lord to be good stewards of what He has blessed us with, our money, our possessions, and our time. Amen? Heavenly Father, we're grateful for Your amazing grace that includes not just the salvation that You purchased for us, but includes the wonderful things that You provide for us. Help us to never take these things for granted, Father. The food, the clothing, the shelter we have, the good things beyond even the needs, Father, just the things we want, and we have so many of those as well. And help us, Father, to never adopt the ideas of the world and their ideas of what money is and what's important, Father. Help, them, help us to never, Father God, uh, allow money to become an idol in our hearts. Help us to never have a love of money that transcends our love for you and what you've given us to do. We thank you now for this time. We pray that your spirit would convict us and speak to us through your word. In Jesus' name, amen.